This is Pakinggan Pilipinas. I'm Elise Punsalan, your fiction DJ. It's only a few days till Christmas, one of the most celebrated holidays on the Christian calendar. Not only by Christians, by the way. It seems, though, that Christmas had taken on multiple meanings other than the obvious, which is the celebration of the birth of Christ. For some, it's a time for stressful shopping, marathon reunions with family and friends, wedding season, Metro Manila Film Festival, which my mother takes very seriously, parties, eating and drinking, gift-giving, even to people you hate, charity work. Little traditions like puto, nibinka, simbangabi, noche buena. Putting up decorations like parol, Christmas trees, belens. Playing Jomari chants, Christmas in our hearts for the gazillionth time. Again, I say Christmas means many things to many people. I'm, I'm not one to judge. Kanya-kanyang gusto yan. Kung saan ka masaya, di ba? But you will agree, I think, when I say that Christmas is a magical time where everybody stops, or tries to stop, or pretends to stop at least, being nasty to other people. It's a magical time where we become children, and we just light up with the promise of something new on Christmas morning, and no, not because we tried to keep off Santa's naughty list by being nice all year, but because we've been loved unconditionally. In the spirit of the holidays, we're featuring two stories, one for Christmas and one for crime, both taken from the Philippine Genre Stories magazine, or PGS magazine, published and edited by Kenneth Yu. Aside from PGS, we have special narrators from Creative Voices Productions who had volunteered their exceptional voices for this month's stories. We've got more trivia for you on the authors and readers, so I hope you'll stick around till the end of the podcast. Our first story is lifted from the PGS holiday issue some years back. Twilight of the Magi by Dominic Simafranca No man dared to travel the wastes of the eastern desert alone, but in those days leading up to the winter solstice, a solitary rider led his camel through the howling dunes. His richly embroidered robes, his fur-lined helmet, and his pointed boots marked him as a Persian, a foreigner to those lands. He had entered Egypt together with the last westbound trade caravan. Four days ago, he had inexplicably broken off from the group, guided by a sextant and a lodestone. He made his way south with the sure steps of a man confident of his destination. There had been nothing to break the monotony of the vast and featureless desert. Whichever way he looked, the horizon lay unbroken with blindingly white undulating sand. Then on the fourth day of his journey, he finally spied a black speck in the distance. It was another traveler. He coaxed his camel into a gallop to meet the other. As he approached, the speck grew to become a camel in a goatskin tent. Sitting by the entrance of the tent, resting in its shade, was an Ethiopian of considerable size and heft. The Persian halted his camel a respectful distance and dismounted. 
He was careful to keep his empty hands in plain sight at all times. He walked towards the Ethiopian, shouting out a friendly greeting. Hail, stranger, and well met! The Ethiopian emerged from his tent and stood up to his full height. He was six cubits tall and dressed in animal skins. His golden smile reflected the sun. Hail to you too, stranger, said the Ethiopian. From his belt he drew a gigantic scimitar. But we'll meet that we shall see. I have no quarrel with you, sir, said the Persian. He stopped but stood his ground. He swung back his robes to reveal a belt full of daggers. The Ethiopian threw his head back and laughed. Scimitar raised high, he charged the Persian. Quick as lightning, the Persian threw three daggers at the lumbering Ethiopian. The daggers flew true, but with a speed that belied his size, the Ethiopian parried them with his sword. You'll have to do better than that, taunted the Ethiopian. He sliced at the Persian's head. The Persian gracefully dodged the blade and rolled away from the giant. The Persian uttered something in his own language and gestured with his hands. A small whirlwind gathered around him, whipping up sand and pebbles. With another gesture, he cast the whirlwind at the Ethiopian. In response, the Ethiopian swung his scimitar in front of himself. The path of the sword burst into a wheel of flame that deflected the debris. No, it gets interesting, said the Ethiopian. He raised his flaming sword over his head. The Persian, for his part, summoned another whirlwind around him. The Ethiopian unleashed a flaming crescent at the Persian, but the force of the Persian's whirlwind scattered it into harmless embers. Now it was the Persian's turn to laugh. His eyes danced with mirth. Is that your best, or are you just getting warmed up? Both men resumed their fighting stances. The Ethiopian scimitar glowed bright with flame, and the wind howled threateningly around the Persian. But now, both were laughing like children. Then, in the space between them, a bolt of lightning struck. Both the Persian and the Ethiopian were thrown back. A voice like thunder boomed out. Enough! The voice belonged to an old man, white and ancient, yet fierce and unbending as iron. His bushy eyebrows grew almost as long as his flowing beard. They stood out over his blue silken robes. He carried no weapon, only a staff, but his presence commanded obedience. The Ethiopian and the Persian got up and dusted themselves. The Ethiopian extended his hand to his adversary, who took it. Gaspar, the Ethiopian said by way of introduction. Well met, friend. Well met indeed. Melchor, the Persian returned. He bowed to the Ethiopian and then to the old man. I am the new bearer of the mantle of the winds. A worthy one indeed, said Gaspar. But what of Master Agdazar? A shadow fell across Melchor's face. Slain in the frozen wastes by Vanitar's treachery. Although he avenged himself on Master Vanitar as he drew his last breath. Sad news indeed. But these are sad times, said Gaspar. Let us hope you shall not have come to the test. But I fear that trial may yet come to pass. Gaspar turned to the old man. Pray, Master Balthasar. What news? That you come alone bodes ill. Ill news indeed, Gaspar, confirmed Balthazar. Eleazar would not be turned from his course. 
He is set on his path to oppose the coming of the emissary. He means to slay him. Even now, he is headed to the Temple of Shands. Worse, he has allied himself with the Negarai. A cry of grief and despair issued from young Melchor. Gaspar clapped his gigantic hands on Melchor's shoulders to bolster his spirits. So it is settled then, Gaspar said. Southward, Balthazar said grimly. They traveled day and night, driving their camels as fast as they dared, pausing only for the briefest of rests. By day, Melchor called on a light breeze to cool their heads. By night, Gaspar lit the way with a flame from his scimitar. The gathering northern winds augured the approaching winter solstice. With it came not just a physical chill, but one that gripped them far deeper. Melchor found himself scanning the skies at twilight, muttering the names of the stars as they winked against the darkness. Searching for the sign, Gaspar said as he drew his camel near to Melchor's. You know you will not find it now. It comes when it comes. When it does, we will all know it. Melchor sighed, then repeated the lines of the prophecy. When the night sky burns bright as day, and births the star to mark the way, completed Gaspar. And then it will be the end of this age, Melchor said. When the emissary comes, the pathways to our powers will be closed forever. What will become of us? We do what we must, as we have been bidden, reminded Gaspar gently, to the very end. Melchor nodded and said no more. Soon, the barren wastes of the eastern desert gave way to the monstrous rock formations that marked the Southlands. The white sand gradually turned brown and became harder and rougher for both hoof and foot. The nip of the air, too, was unnaturally cold. Even Gaspar, who had cheered the band with stories and songs, turned uneasily quiet. At the end of the third day of their journey, they spied the southern gates a row of high cliffs and mountains that resembled jagged teeth. Melchor shuddered at the sight. Balthazar called a halt to set up camp. None of them slept that night. The blood-red moon overhead foreboded ill, an unwelcome reminder of the task that still lay ahead. Instead, they sat around the campfire and said little to each other. Melchor watched, fascinated as Gaspar played with a lick of fire that he guided from finger to finger, giving it a life as a dancing sprite. You're very good at that, said Melchor. Gaspar grinned, the firelight reflecting in his teeth and in his eyes. Tell me, Gaspar, continued Melchor, when the time comes, will you miss the power to do what you do now? Indeed I shall, said Gaspar. I can hardly remember a time when I did not feel the caress of invisible flames around me. I imagine I should feel empty and alone. I have always been wrapped in the wind, said Melchor, even as a child. Balthazar stretched out his hand. Lightning crackled from finger to finger. His eyes, too, blazed with electricity. So who's to say that Eleazar is wrong and we are right, demanded Melchor. Surely he feels as we do, which is why he acts thus. And Vanitar too? rebuked Balthazar. Melchor flushed and bit his lip. Know this, my brothers, said Balthazar. 
For thousands of years, it has been the charge of our order to hold back the darkness, and held it back we have while we waited for the coming of the emissary. This is why we have been given our powers. For that reason only, we dare not cling to them, lest we become the darkness we fought, like Eleazar and Vanitar before him. I too have felt the urge to fight the future, Gaspar said. I fear it too, you know, but I know what it is that must be. All things must pass, Balthazar said. It is written in the stars, as it is in your heart. You know the truth of it. And when the emissary comes, what then? Then we cross into the abyss, Balthazar said, and put ourselves in the hands of the one. They said nothing more that night. They only stared into the fire until the break of dawn. When morning came, they crossed the remaining distance to the southern gates. The ground grew increasingly rough. Before long, they were traversing stone instead of sand. Jagged rocks, twisted into evil shapes by the wind, grew out of the landscape. Soon, black clouds rolled in, targeting the day. Thunder rumbled. Past the gates, they climbed into a basin of another desert, surrounded by high rock cliffs. They dismounted and proceeded on foot, taking nothing but their weapons. It was dusk, and early stars twinkled in the sky. In the middle of the mesa stood the Temple of Sands. Four stone pillars, arcing high in the air, their tops hovering over a gigantic pit that glowed red. Overhead, directly above the pit, the storm clouds gathered and spit lightning. Atop the largest pillar, a figure had his hands outstretched, robes billowing from the draft. The figure did not budge, but the wind carried the sounds of his chants. That fool, Eleazar! cried Balthazar. He'll bring doom on us all! Hurry! He must be stopped! Gaspar dropped his cloak and drew his scimitar. Likewise, Melchor stripped his robe to reveal all his daggers. The three rushed toward the Temple of Sands. The ground trembled and the stench of rotting meat filled the air. Ahead of them, the desert split open in a thousand places. The shadowy figures of the Negarai emerged. They were of the form of men and beasts, the deepest black throughout except for their eyes which blazed red. A path through the demons, Balthazar ordered. I must reach Eleazar before he completes the summoning spell. But how? Melchor cried. Our time is almost up. If we lose our powers in the midst of the swarm. Steady man, Gaspar shouted. Use the power while you can. A wave of Negarai thundered across the desert, threatening to crush the three intruders in their fury. Gaspar loosed a fireball at the head of the charge, scattering the advance. Balthazar blasted stragglers on both sides with lightning. Melchor, still yourself, man! We need you! Melchor made no answer. He knelt in the sand, cowering. Already the first wave was regrouping, preparing another thrust. We are lost, Balthazar, said Gaspar. We cannot hold off these demons without Melchor. The Negarai closed the remaining distance with amazing speed. Gaspar and Balthazar hurled fireballs and lightning, but the demons simply trampled on their fallen comrades. Their number formed an impenetrable wall of blackness, 
closing in on the three wizards. Suddenly, a raging whirlwind deflected the frontmost row of Negarai. The whirlwind howled around the three men, gaining strength and fury. Faster and faster the whirlwind blew. Then it exploded outward in a terrifying wave of sand and rock. Tornado fished, muttered Balthazar as he surveyed the havoc. He turned to see Gaspar helping Melchor up. The young wizard was one, but otherwise conscious and whole. Gaspar whooped triumphantly, but already the Negarai ranks were reforming, and still Eleazar continued with his summoning right. Quickly, while they are in chaos, we must advance! Explosions of flame and lightning lit up the desert night. Screeching and screaming, the Negarai would threaten to reclaim the darkness with their numbers. They hurled spears and stones in their very bodies, but where they massed waves of sand and rock, driven by the whirlwind, scattered them once more. The carnage followed a path that led inch by precious inch to the main pillar of the temple. Round the base of the pillar, another powerful blast of wind leveled the Negarai. In the glow of the red moonlight, three figures stood over a circle of fallen demons. Wizards and demons eyed each other angrily in that brief respite. Then black arrows and spears flew once more to be broken up again by walls of flame and rock. Hold the line, my friends! Balthazar shouted as he ran up the steps carved into the stone. I must face Eleazar! Balthazar scampered up with supernatural speed, never tiring, never slowing, never stopping until he neared the pinnacle where Eleazar stood over a black altar. Eleazar's blank eyes showed no recognition of his former comrade. His twisted mouth hung open, revealing a stone-dry tongue and rotten teeth. His skin was taut over his bones, and his flesh seemed to waste away right before Balthazar's eyes. In his hand he held a curved knife, and he raised this to strike at Balthazar. Balthazar aimed his staff at Eleazar. From the sky, from the pillars, from the very desert itself, lightning crackled. The energy slithered like snakes around the altar. With another wave of the staff, the lightning engulfed the pillar, and with it, Eleazar. When the lightning faded, the altar lay in smoldering ruins. Eleazar lay on the platform, battered, burned, and unmoving. Oh, my brother! Balthazar wailed. He bent down over the body. How have we come to this? Suddenly, Eleazar's eyes flashed open. His mouth broke into the rictus of a twisted grimace. His hand caught Balthazar's shoulder, the very touch burning Balthazar black where he held him. You're too late, Balthazar. The ceremony is complete. Down below, the pit rumbled, and columns of sulfur rose. The desert shivered. The Negarai, sensing victory, tittered and paused from their attacks on Gaspar and Melchor. You're a fool, Balthazar, to just lie down and give up. Eleazar cackled. If we slay the emissary, our powers will be ours forever. No! His coming has been foretold. It is the will of the one. Do you understand so little, Balthazar? The emissary is the one. To slay the emissary is to slay the one. 
Balthazar howled in pain. Down below, Gaspar and Melchor heard the bone-chilling cry of despair. Balthazar has failed! Melchor cried. We are lost! Not while we draw breath, Gaspar said. Quickly, to the altar! Melchor gestured with his hands. A gust of wind enveloped them both. The wind grew into a gale and propelled the pair to the top of the pillar. Still in flight, Gaspar blasted at Eleazar with firebolts. Eleazar easily deflected the missiles with a wave of his hand. His magic is too strong, Gaspar shouted to Melchor as they landed. The pit below opened, vents hurled rocks upward, lava broke out and flowed. From the pit issued an otherworldly roar. Eleazar threw back his head and cackled wildly. With one swift motion, Melchor swept his hands over his belt and loosed two daggers at Eleazar. One dagger lodged in his shoulder, the other in his forearm. Reeling from the pain, Eleazar let go of Balthazar. Gaspar leapt forward and struck Eleazar on the head with a hilt of his scimitar. The rumbling continued. Now it was so strong that the pillars swayed and trembled. The pit broke open and a column of fire shot out. A giant serpent's head emerged. Its head was as large as a tent. Its scales were as big as shields, and its fangs were as long as a full-grown man's leg. The three wizards looked down from the pillar at the emerging monster. The air around it bristled with dark magic so strong that it made the hair on their necks stand on end. Eleazar, what have you done? Balthazar cried. The serpent spotted them. Driven by a malevolent intelligence, it rammed the pillar they were on. Rocks came loose and the pillar tottered and threatened to fall. Below, the Negarai smashed their swords against their shields. Balthazar, a lightning storm, Gaspar suggested desperately. It's too powerful, Balthazar said. And I'm too weak. No, we only need to hold it off, Melchor said. When the sign comes. Balthazar nodded in understanding. He picked up his staff, raised it with trembling hands, and mustered all his remaining energy. Lightning streaked across the Temple of Sands once more, rebounding across the pillars and coalescing in a white-hot sphere around the serpent's head. The bolts seared through its dark armor, scorching its head in several places. Hurt and angry, the serpent hissed. It's working, Balthazar, Gaspar said. Once more! I cannot, Balthazar cried. Too weak, too... Weak. The serpent struck again. The pillar teetered. Behind them, a black mass of Negarai ascended, red eyes blazing with murder. Gaspar fended them off with a wall of flame, but they were too many to hold off for long. We fell the one, Balthazar cried. His emissary is doomed. No, we haven't, Melchor said. Look over the horizon. It was much too early for daybreak. But in the distance, where earth met sky, a light grew like the dawn, rising in strength till it illuminated their world, brighter than day. This was a white light, untainted and pure, unlike any of them had ever seen. Balthazar, Gaspar, and Melchor gaped in rapt wonder as the universe for a moment stood still. Then the light faded, and the night returned, 
but it did not disappear completely. Its brightness collapsed into a single star that outshone the others and found rest in a place in the sky to the far north. A stillness came over the desert, the only sound being that of a gentle breeze. No more demons surrounded them. The Negarai are gone, Melchor whispered. The prophecy has come to pass, Balthazar said. They looked at each other, wondering what would happen next. From below there came a rumble and crash, and their pillar tottered once more. The giant serpent still lived, still struggled to escape the pit. Why did it not disappear like the Nagarai? Melchor asked. Because it's not a wraith, Balthazar said. It's alive! Eleazar drained his own life force to summon it. But why? He meant to stop the coming of the emissary, Gaspar said. But he's failed, hasn't he? He hasn't failed yet, Balthazar said. The gates are not completely closed, and the emissary is still weak. If the emissary is slain... Balthazar raised his staff and concentrated, but managed only a small spark. Melchor too chanted to summon the wind, but only a light breeze came. No! Balthazar cried. Our magic is gone! Then perhaps no magic is needed, Gaspar said. Gaspar hefted his scimitar over his shoulder. He turned one final time to Balthazar and Melchor and smiled roguishly. We'll meet, my brothers, he said. And then he jumped over the edge. Gaspar fell, his scimitar gripped tightly in his hands. Pointed down, as he did, he uttered a prayer to the one. Never before had he felt more vulnerable. He landed on top of the serpent's head, and his weight lodged the scimitar deep into the serpent's eye. The serpent thrashed in agony, whipping him about. Gaspar held on valiantly as long as he could until the serpent's final lurch threw him to the ground. The giant serpent convulsed before falling to the earth and died. When Gaspar came to, he found himself looking up at Melcher's face. He looked down at his body and saw that his wounds had been tended. Gaspar managed a weak smile. You are quite fortunate that the healing herbs still work, my friend, Melchor said. Gaspar leaned to his side. He saw a kneeling Balthazar in the distance, burning incense over a pile of rocks. Gaspar had never seen him look so old. When Balthazar finally stood, he was stooped and relied on his staff to steady himself. But in his smile, Gaspar perceived that his friend felt a great relief. The wind no longer cloaks me as it once did, Melchor confessed. I no longer feel the fire about me, Gaspar offered. So we have crossed into the abyss, Melchor said. How do you feel? Gaspar asked. Melchor regarded the question for a while, then answered, I feel free. Balthazar limped towards them. His hair and eyebrows no longer looked so neat, and his silken robe was torn in many places. When he spoke, though, there was a twinkle in his eye. What do we do now? Melchor asked him. Where do we go? Our duty is done, he said. Now we hide and disappear. I think, though, that I should like to see the emissary, said Melchor. Balthasar thought about it for a while. Aye, he said finally. We owe that to ourselves at least. 
Balthazar pointed his staff to the star that shone brilliantly in the north, even against the brightening dawn. To Bethlehem! You've just listened to Twilight of the Magi, written by Dominic Gerald Simafranca, and narrated for us by Isaac Zach Bolatao and Joseph Paolo Epoch Claraval. In case you're wondering, the boys really did want to say it that way. Magi. It just felt right, especially when you've got super wise men on an extraordinary mission. Dominic, the author, believes that Christianity's heroes are badass. And those were his words. And he means that in a good way, too. The Magi, he says, are usually portrayed as cowering old men. And he thought that it couldn't be more wrong because it takes guts to travel all that way. After deciding to pump up the action and adding the fantasy elements, we've got three wizard kings in combat with the dark forces of evil. If you want to see more of Dominique's work, Grenadier, and I hope I pronounced that correctly, Dominic, will be published in the PGS Crime Issue. By next year, he'll be producing the best of Tegmai fiction anthology and Margarita Marfori's short story collection called Fractional Lives. He'll also be at the helm of the third Tabuan International Literary Festival in Davao. All right, let's imagine for a moment that you're on a bus on the way to some place you've never been before and you find yourself sitting next to a woman. Because it's a nine-hour journey, you strike up a conversation with her. What would you feel if she told you the story instead? Our second piece is from the soon-to-be-released PGS Crime Issue, edited by F.H. Batakan. It's called God is the Space Between, and it's written by Marianne Mall. There are stories that do not really feel like stories. Having no beginning and ending, these stories settle over its characters ever so thinly, that there is a danger of never seeing it at all until time pulls someone's eyes upwards to see the haze above their lives. These are the stories that hold no deep, numbing emotion, cause no smarts, create no stigmas, but stay on in the heart like a bottomless hollow. Spanning years and years and years of regularity and prosaic calm, these stories have the quality of air, not even of wind or of breeze just of air. This is the kind of story that I have, and it is a story I can tell only once. So listen. It was when I was 41 that I first felt a deep hunger. The hunger began, strangely, as a deep, large pain in my chest, which crept through around my torso and radiated towards my upper back in a tightening grip. It throbbed down my lower back, towards my hips, and then finally reached round to my belly, causing me to stop what I was doing and grip the edge of the countertop. The first time this happened, as I was tidying up in the kitchen one afternoon on a Thursday, I simply thought I was hungry. So I warmed up some of the leftover food and rice from lunch, and ate a full meal at three o'clock in the afternoon, with two peanut butter sandwiches for dessert. That seemed to ease the hunger a great deal, although a light throbbing still lingered until after dinner, 
However, days after that, I would gain the habit of waking up by three o'clock in the morning to the same deep, large, gripping pain in my chest and the inexplicable gnawing hunger. Doctors could not make any sense of it, and, out of theories, they dismissed my symptoms as part of the onset of menopause. So every couple of mornings would see me making large sandwiches in the kitchen as I kneaded my back with the heel of my hand. One night, however, was different. I woke up and glanced over my husband, who was snoring gently beside me, his back to me. As the pain grew to include my back, I bit my lip and gripped my pillow, and I began to see visions of blood and cuttings, cuttings that had healed over time to look like skin was crafted into skin, bruises and tears and hematomas in various stages of disappearance on legs and arms, hand-shaped red swellings on forearms and bleeding gums. I was having a nightmare, I thought. But the pain progressed and persisted, and I went to the bathroom so I could moan and writhe in pain without waking up my husband. I closed the bathroom door behind me, turned on the light, and sat on the chair in front of the dresser. In the mirror, I could see dark circles under my eyes and noticed that my skin had started to turn yellowish. There were reddish welts in my neck and the colletage and fading bruise on my shoulder. I was confused. Has my nightmare become real? Or was I still dreaming everything up? I closed my eyes for a minute and then opened them. My image was still staring back at me from the mirror. I slapped myself once in the face on my right cheek and still I was there. I pinched my thigh and twisted the skin as far as it would go. But still, the face stayed in the mirror. I looked at the bottles and jars neatly aligned on my dresser. I opened a small blue jewelry box that held the jewels that I usually wore every day. They were part of the family store of jewelry that had been passed down among the female bloodline since the family's patriarch, a Spanish cartographer of German descent, came to the Philippines with one of the Spanish galleons to create maps of the country's islands. The rest of the jewels were in a bank safety deposit box to which only my mother had access, and I presume that when she passes on, the box will be left to the guardianship of my older sister. I sifted through the jewels that I had with me. Earrings, necklaces, bracelets, rings, and pendants, and remembered the moments when my mother handed them to me. I particularly remember her giving me an antique cross of St. Benedict as a gift when I was thirty-five. I remember because she pulled me closer to her and whispered, All that you need to say is, Get thee behind me, Satan! That was the very first time I heard her utter the name Satan in all the years I have known her. Then memory stopped because the pain had begun to grow on my back and run down to my hips. My belly had also begun to hurt and the hunger began. I felt cold sweat on my forehead and my hands felt clammy and my feet felt moist, even when they were placed on the area of where my chair stood. My head had now started to hurt. At first it felt like a drill was going through my right eye, and then the right part of my head started to hurt. It hurt so much that it felt like it was actually shrinking, and then I could not see clearly out of my right eye. I, I staggered up and noticed that my nightgown was damp with sweat, and I took it off and wiped myself with a towel. 
My breathing has become shallow because of the deepening and spreading pain. I gripped the edge of the dresser and gritted my teeth. I managed to get to the bathroom sink and uncap a bottle of mineral water and take great gulps from it. And from where I stood clutching my stomach, I suddenly noticed something. The corner of a dark-colored, very ornate tapestry behind the door, under a hollow alcove hidden behind a chest of drawers, topped by a rather tall potted plant. I found it odd. I put the plant on the floor and moved the chest aside. It was quite hard to do because of the pain in my back, hips, and stomach. But slowly, the tapestry emerged. The tapestry was so rich with color and marvelous patterns, and yet it was hidden from view in such a way that people would miss it, even with the alcove light on. Well, my husband and I were the only ones using the bathroom, so why would I cover the tapestry? It was too beautiful to hide. And then something dawned on me. I felt around the sides of the tapestry and found the tacks that secured it to the wall and pried them off with a metal cuticle pusher. My stomach started to hurt more deeply and I started to work faster. My breathing became even shallower and with cold sweat all over me. I cracked a nail all the way to the nail bed and bit on my nail bed to numb the pain. Something purple formed under my nail. I knew something was wrong, and I knew my pain had sprung from this tapestry or whatever was behind it. And then I saw it. It was a full-length mirror, and I stood aside, wondering. Who would cover my mirror that way, as if someone in the house has just died? I don't remember covering the mirror myself. Why would I cover my full-length mirror with a tapestry? How long has it been covered? How did I check myself every day before leaving the house for errands to see that my skirt was straight and my blouse had no uneven tucks in the waistband? As I thought about it, it suddenly came to me that there were no other mirrors around the house. The only mirror I have is my dresser mirror, which was smaller than the ones I used in catalogs and lifestyle magazines. My dresser mirror was enough to show just my face and neck, which I deemed sufficient as I put on my makeup and styled my hair every day. Curious to see myself in full, I, I walked to the mirror and went weak at the sight. There were bruise marks all over me and red welts and many cuts and tears in various stages of healing. And then, everything came back to me in a rush that took my breath away and made me feel lightheaded. My hospitalization for a miscarriage when I was thirty-five. My mother telling me what to tell Satan. My husband, drunk and holding a razor blade to my neck as he raped me from behind. My frantic calls to my sister in the middle of the night and consequent years of battering and physical abuse. I remember myself covering the full-length mirror with a sheet years and years ago, crying through the pain in my head that had just been rammed into a wall and remembered all of a sudden all the tiny details of the past eleven years. 
torn lips, hard slaps in my face, cuts in my thighs, punches in my stomach, kicks on the legs and hips, being locked in the bedroom until my visible bruises had healed. The air was very still in the bathroom, and as I picked up my husband's razor blade from among his other toiletries and flipped it open, it didn't even make an echo through the tiles. I could hear no sound, not even of myself breathing. I have no idea when all of this had begun. All I felt was space, and God in that space. In the air, in the abyss that was my bedroom suite that belonged to my husband and me. I walked out of the bedroom, towards where my husband lay sleeping in another drunken stupor. He lay on his back now, which made things much easier for me. Maybe God turned him over. As I approached him, I felt less and less of God. As the space between my husband and me got smaller, I felt God disappear like lightning mist. And when I was just inches from his face, I felt no God. Someone else was there, but it wasn't God. God was absent, as he was always been absent when my husband would be close enough to me, skin on skin, to hurt me and batter me for eleven years. As long as my husband and I were apart, God was there. But now that I could feel my husband's body heat on my face and smell the alcohol in his heavy breathing, God was characteristically absent. I bent even closer to my husband's face and whispered, Get thee behind me, Satan, and slashed his throat slowly from left to right, making sure to press deeply and precisely. He made a low gurgling noise as the blood flowed copiously, from the gash in his throat, together with the overpowering odor of alcohol. I tossed the razor blade onto the space beside him and started to walk slowly backwards. I started feeling God's presence again. The farther I was from Satan incarnate, the larger God loomed into the air between us. I took my bathrobe, which was thrown across the back of a chair, and sat down pulling my knees up to my chest. It was done. I was free, eleven years too late. But I felt nothing, nothing at all. I know that my story will not end there. There is enough of God and space to write a million epics of hurt and bestiality, just as there is enough of time to redeem oneself and forget. Yet some things will stay on, like the air, like God, like hunger. 
That was Marian Moll's God is the Space Between, narrated for us by Dulce Amor Fortunado. The author finished writing this story at a difficult point in her life, and it helped her get distracted from the constant fretting and sleeping. She started, though, with a play on words, which evolved into questions like, what exists in the space between two people in a relationship? God is the space between, I'd like to believe, offered an interesting, though disturbing, answer. Marion is currently working on her thesis and her first collection of stories. I'd like to say my thanks now and special thanks to Kenneth Yu and Ichi Batakan of Philippine Genre Stories. And thank you also to our friends at Creative Voices who shared with us their wonderful talents. It was an awesome experience hanging out with you guys. It didn't feel at all like working. It was so much fun. If you'd like to learn more about voice talents, do check out creativevoices.com. That's C-R-E-A-T-I-V-O-I-C-E-S dot com. Also, a few days from now, I'll be posting more juicy bits on the authors and readers on our Facebook page. Search Pakinggan Pilipinas on Facebook, click the like button, and you'll get updates and backstories on all our episodes. I hope you enjoyed this month's double issue. And I'd really like to see you again on the first day of 2011. Hold your loved ones close to you. Merry Christmas, everyone. This is Elise Ponsalan for Pakinggan Pilipinas. Ating kwento, Pakinggan mo. Hi, I'm Zach from Creative Voices Productions. And... And hi, I'm Apple, also from Creative Voices, wishing you a merry little Christmas! <laughs>